welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. I hope you're well. And today I'm joined again by Laurie Deshaw, Veronica Olaya Love, and Alexander Love. And we're going to be continuing our exploration. This is a standalone conversation. They were in a previous podcast, but we're going to continue our exploration of integral consciousness, wholeness, some of the ideas in Gebser's work. We're going to be talking about this dynamic tension and interplay between our emergence. We don't know where we are emerging and unfolding into. There's a novelty to that. And this common idea in coaching of envisioning our future and tuning into the future that we want to have and having goals. And how do we avoid some of the pitfalls and some of the critiques of things like close the gap coaching that have recently been made? So it's a really rich conversation Maybe I actually feel that this was even better than our original conversation. I really enjoyed this one. Laurie Deshaw is a clinician, a teacher, a mentor, and a poetic scholar, author of the first and only modern book on the five spirits of ancient Chinese medicine. She's worked for over three decades to integrate the principles and practice of Chinese medicine with Western depth psychology to create alchemical healing which is a therapeutic modality directly focused on the psycho-spiritual and soul issues of our time. Veronica Olaya Love is the CEO of the Newfield Network, which is a highly acclaimed coach training organization in the U.S., based all around the world, actually. And she combines over 15 years of experience working in the holistic health field with over 14 years of immersion in the ontological coaching field. Alexander Love is an acupuncturist, life coach, and cranial sacral therapist. He's worked with individuals and groups for over 14,000 life-altering hours. He's trained at the Newfield Network School. He's a professor at the Academy for Five Element Acupuncture at Southwest Acupuncture College. And there's many more things I could say about each of my guests I really invite you to check out their work. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about the power of presence. It's our online coach training, which is enrolling now. And it's all about how can we bring in what for me is just a key ingredient in any transformational coaching presence. Presence is something not only we can cultivate, but something that we are and that we can hold a space of presence for our clients from within which they can begin to unfold. So how can we cultivate presence and work with presence in a way that deepens our coaching? That's what this program is all about. And for me, especially in these times when things like AI are coming in fast and that's going to potentially replace a lot of coaching, our capacity to be present, our capacity to be presence and attune deeply to our clients is going to be the differentiating factor in what makes some coaches successful and others less so. And again, this is what this program is all about. So you can head to coachesrising.com forward slash power of presence to find out more. We've got an amazing faculty, teachers like Jim Detmer, Nicholas Yanni, Thomas Hubel, John Prendergast, Diana Chapman, and David White. As I said, you can find out more by heading to coachesrising.com forward slash power presence and enrollment is open now until the 9th of may this year 2023 all right so let's dive into the podcast with alexander veronica and laurie 
So, uh, yeah, we're back again. Uh, Laurie, Veronica and Alexander, we're kind of doing a part two of our conversation, uh, which I really enjoyed last time. And uh, we got great feedback about it. I think you said some of your communities, uh, it was well received. So, yeah, I just felt felt apt to do a part two. So maybe just uh, each of you could just check in first and say, how are you? Where are you as well in the world? Hi, Joel. It's Lori here, and I'm sitting in a little sunny room in Nyack, New York, on the bank of the mighty Hudson River. It's great to be here. And uh, Veronica, and I'm in Boulder, Colorado on a snowy day. So we're huddled in drinking tea. Yeah, and uh, I'm in another room in the same house as Veronica in a snowy boulder morning. It's beautiful snow. It was like that dry, sort of shimmery, soft snow this morning. I was out early and uh, quite a beautiful landscape. Nice. I want to um, chime in there. I'm on the edge of Amsterdam and it's actually like springs coming through, which I love, but it's, yeah, it's the middle of February and probably which happens often it'll disappear quite harshly. So um, yeah, well, let's dive in because I was sharing, I've got a few things I'd love to pose you a few questions and the first question I'm really curious about, that's why I love doing this podcast is because I get to talk to really interesting people and ask them the things that I've been sat with. So, you know, as I've been chewing on my my learning around complexity theory and emergence and hearing people like Dave Snowden, who has been critiquing things like metamodernism, mindsets, the notion of mindsets, uh, stage theory, which I think we we tapped into in our last conversation. Uh, it's led me into this interesting kind of inquiry around the role of visioning and desire in our unfolding process. So I'll just say a little bit about that and then to tear up and then I'm curious what you think. So, you know, in some ways, some people are saying that creating an idealized future is even dangerous, you know, that it can actually distract us from the present moment and people critiquing this notion of close the gap coaching, you know, like, oh, I'm here and I want to get to that place in the future, that idealized place and uh, critiquing that notion, you know, saying that how could we possibly um, do engage in that type of endeavor, you know, like actually our experience is much more emergent, you know, and we can't possibly know ahead of time where we'll end up. And we might even close down amazing potential possibilities. Uh, and, and and some some people saying like, oh, maybe, and this is related maybe more to collective or organizational life, but that oh, maybe is even more relevant to steer based upon futures we don't want, you know, so we know what we don't want. And um, suggesting that we might want uh, to steer based on micro feedback in the moment, which allows us to say we want more of this and less of that. You know, so anyway, uh, what I'm wondering is how do you hold this? You know, like, because it, it does seem to me that there's something valuable in 
imagining what I might want for my life. You know, we're, we were, is it, is it that we're actually, or is it more about desire, you know, like tuning into desire in the moment and how our desired futures and what we want are actually showing up here right now. So that's enough for me. You know, I don't normally speak this long at the start, but I'm just curious how each of you holds this notion of idealized futures or unfolding emergence in your own work with clients. And we can get practical too, yeah? So, yeah, what do you do? What do you do with your clients around this? I'll I'll chime in to to, um, jump off here. I think for me... um, First, I would say, I think that um, often for me, it's an embracing of all the possibilities. So I think there are occasions and moments where what I would call more transactional coaching, which I see as more from A to B is mighty darn useful (laughs) and serves us really well. And I think there are moments where um, it does not serve us as well and where it does absolutely limit us. And so I think for me, you know, the ontological work that we've done for so long has really oriented towards transformation, which um, I believe the bed of that is um, is to be open to, to speculate and inquire even the why of what, you know, of us wanting a particular shift, right? Even like going so fundamental and so deep that um, we can actually question our standing and our perspective. And therefore, by the end of the conversation, we can radically say, oh, you know what? I didn't even see that I could go from point A to Z or D or F. (laughs) And now that I see all those variations and, you know, possibilities, um, wow, where where do I want to go? And so I think there's something really rich. Um, And I often find that life is so broad and so huge that that most things serve on some occasions, right? And I I guess I would add to that, that, um, that this idea, you know, Joel, that you spoke about, about really being with in an organization, I mean, as a CEO, um, I'm constantly wanting to attune to the multiplicity of perspectives for my entire team in order to, as much as I can, have a broad understanding of implications and consequences and effects um, that are generated by any one decision. And so from a team or organizational view, um, you know, for me, there's a, a tuning in and an orchestrating of, of this wisdom of the whole in order to see what direction serves us um, as a learning process. And so I hold an organization as a group of people that are in their process of learning as they provide service to the world. And in that there is, you know, feedback loops and there are checking ins and conversations that when we see conversations as generative, I think it offers us that opportunity to see that we're always co-creating, right? We're always in that um, movement. And so how do we want to engage um, in those dialogues in order to maximize, right, the goodness that we bring? And so for me, there's an orientation to virtue and to depth that I think uh, is the anchoring points for how to navigate. And I'll, I'll stop there. I've said a lot. 
Well, I might just actually jump in and ask ask a quick follow up question because you you know you talked about yeah as a CEO and your coach, and there's this sense of a generative conversation, and you mentioned virtue and depth. I'm just wondering for you, how do you know like when you're on the right path? You know, in the in inverted commas, like you know, yeah. yeah. I think it's a gorgeous question. You know, in Chinese medicine, they talk about the virtue of propriety, doing the right thing at the right time in the right way. And it's not right necessarily by an external standard of right, but rather being in such connection with the depth of our hearts and our soul um, that there is some flourishing, some light that comes and radiates forth um, that I think it, and, and I think that's a question that I would rather than answer, but to hold, you know, how are we attuning to know, to knowing is, is knowing coming from a felt sense is knowing coming from, um, you know, a cognitive sense an intuitive sense. Like there's so many different ways to know and how do we integrate all those knowings in a given moment to say, ah, yes. Right. W- what is that for us? And, and I think that's a beautiful question. And I think as humans, we orient to that knowing in a vast array of, of possibilities. I think it depends on, on who we are. Yeah, I'd love to, to jump in there. Because I, I think, you know, in, in reflecting on your invitation, Joel, you know, I very much sort of align with what Veronica is pointing to is that it isn't, I mean, I think this is the beauty of, of embracing as many perspectives as human beings, you know, at least the attempt to embrace as many perspectives that human beings have kind of encountered it. And so that the, you know, to me, it's not, well, we shouldn't envision a future or we should be in the present moment, but rather through which perspectives tend to favor um, time, which has more of a, a, a progressive dimension, which in some cases can orient us beyond the moment. There's more of a sense of trajectorizing. These are the, these are the perspectives that tend to like developmental models. And then we have perspectives that tend to favor space orientation that tend to be much more in the moment. And of course, as humans grow up, these tend to to get closer and closer together. And so then you start hearing human beings talking about um, time in different ways, you know, and um, contrasting Kronos time, which is sort of a progressive time ticking to Kairos time, which is more of a a relationship to moments and this propriety that Veronica is talking about doing the right thing, not because someone told you so, not even because you think so, but because your heart is in the beat and it's rhythmic with another heart that's in the beat. And so there's something that's rolling and flowing and and coursing through the cosmos. And so then you start having this, this sense of being in the moment and a fire that's, you know, generating a future um, that maybe is intimated, but not fully formed. And so all that to say, I'm not proposing that what I just said is also the answer. It's just to say that I think, for me, I I hold the question as what's appropriate for each individual. You know, I want a 20-year-old to be envisioning a future and practicing 
that new capacity that's coming online to see something beyond the concrete collective rules and roles that their parents have laid out for them, even if they're good rules and good, you know, good sort of integrous ways of being human. But there is a need for dreaming at certain stages of human life. But then there's another dimension of intimating a future that's fuzzy and unformed, not a future that's already sitting out there. And I think that's, you know, part of what I love about the concern around danger, which what I hear is, well, if I'm envisioning an idealized future within my current perspectival capacities, the future I'm envisioning is always going to be constrained by, by my current perspectival capacities. So I can't actually envision a future beyond what I already can see, but maybe there's, there's, that's why I like the word intimation, you know, intimating there's sometimes it feels like there's, there's something that is revelatory that has a mysterious tale, a mysterious heart to it. And that may, you know, involve being in the moment, in fact, or maybe envisioning a future and then not holding it as guardrail, but as wondering, wonderment. Um, Because I think the danger does come when we decide to envision a future and then attempt to stick to it. But I mean, there's plenty of times in my own work and my own discoveries that I've envisioned something that was sort of like a loose laying down of strings and then in many moments later, those strings got reorganized and they kind of looked a, still a little bit string-like and maybe they sort of wiggled in a kind of similar way, but there was all these other contours that they began to take shape. So for me, it comes to all sides and, and really allowing for both. Can we allow a true emergence? Can envisioning be allowed when envisioning is wanted? And can that envisioning be, by, be wiggly so that it can change as we actually discover the future that we think we're going to meet? And maybe it looks totally different. Maybe I, just before Laurie comes in, I can also ask a follow-up question around appropriateness. You know, again, like if we think about you're a coach, you know, and I know this is probably a difficult question because it's always dependent on the moment, but how how are you attuning like to that sense of a, appropriateness in the moment? Um, maybe that's not quite a clear question, but um, I guess like I guess a question that uh, you could speak into now, and which maybe everyone could. But it's like uh, when you're working with people, how do you uh, work with their unfolding? You know, their their sense of vision and what they want to become. And then also that it is emergent and it's fuzzy as you described. So, yeah. Well, I I think, I think for me in the context of coaching, there's a, a, a deep embodied orientation to wholeness, which immediately leads to the projection that my client is fundamentally whole we can call it a projection, but 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 in experience, it's it's a um, it's a direct attuning to their capacity to know what they need and where they need to go, and an invitation into 
inviting a conversation that calls upon that depth dimension. And, and in Chinese medicine, the, the propriety, one of the virtues Veronica is speaking to, it's related to the heart. It's related to, to this rhythmic attunement where what is right, it's not doing what's proper in the way we typically use that word, but it's, it's what is uh, automatically spontaneous in a, in a, in a, a, a um, in a dual encounter or in a, in an encounter between self and, and so-called other. Um, and so, but that's like a complicated way of saying, I trust people. And so I don't, I don't need to, to know anything. I just trust them. And I live in that as an embodied connection. And for me, it is related to in the moment emergence where time and space are, are unified. So, but I want to, I want to say that with the caveat that that's a way of looking at things and that isn't the way I think people should look at things because if my client is in a dimension of being where what they want to explore is envisioning a future, I trust that that is a good move for them because it's coming from something true in them. And I want to support that. And and that's where I feel, and I'll just, I'll pause in a minute. I feel in coaching, one of the things that's often missing is developmental rights, which is the fundamental recognition that everyone gets to have the perspectives that they have and that we don't take a few developmental perspectives and say, this is what coaching is because then it, uh, it becomes an act of rejection and, and creates fragmentation in the field and with our clients. So I'm kind of projecting onto clients what we privilege. Mm-hmm. There's a lot in what you said. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Even worse, projecting onto the field of coaching, you know, what coaching is. And, and the problem is not everybody fits into to, to that, that way of being. And so it, it can put on unnecessary constraints. I remember Terry O'Fallon talking about um, wanting to lift the roof off when she's in a, when she's holding a, a group, wanting to have a group where there's no roof. There's no point where you reach a limit where you're now going to be excluded if you embody a new perspective. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, taking in my my brain is a little bit on fire here, listening to all of this, and I'm aware even with the question, Joel, um, is it useful or is it dangerous to uh, imagine into the future to hope for an achievement of a goal? Does that in some way limit us? And honestly, even the question, um, I experience a kind of combination of anticipatory excitement and terror at the same time. And in, in sort of sitting with everything that people have said so far, um, I think that the what comes to me is it, it is a both end, and it has to be a both end. My understanding of how I would begin to break the question down is I would go back to Gebser, go back to the idea of the evolution of consciousness or that we are on some kind of trajectory of development. 
And when I speak of that, I always say, of course, it's a choice to embrace that, that consciousness is going somewhere. It's a choice. And sometimes when you look at the way the world is going, it's hard to believe that there is an evolution happening. But um, it's much more fun and it's much more interesting to live with this idea that there is a futurity to move into, that there is something going on. And I choose that every day to believe that. So with that belief and with that model of something evolving, how I would approach your question, Joel, is from a Gebserian perspective, this idea of having a goal. I'm here and I'm here at A and B is where I want to be. I'm working on a piece of writing now. That's A. B is I want to finish this piece of writing have it edited, bring it out into the world. Now, is that a dangerous thing to do? For me, that is the beauty of mental consciousness. It's like what we have worked to achieve as humans for thousands and thousands of years to have a capacity to interface with cause and effect, to bring our will to bear on a process or to have a perspective of where I'm going. You know, in Gebser's view, that is the achievement of mental consciousness. It's It's been the Western project for 2,000 years, right? So to say, okay, now we just throw that out because it's dangerous. From, a Gebser, from Gebser's perspective, we're never going to get to an integral vantage point without it. It's a necessary component of the wholeness. However, to get stuck in it, and I'm only saying what everyone else is saying, but I'm saying it from this model, you know, Gebser's model, which is that the viewpoint that people are bringing forth that we we need to be in awareness of all the possibilities simultaneously, allowing everything its emergence, we can't really get there without the other capacity. So in a way, Alexander, what you said was so beautiful. It's like a 20-year-old, or I'm working with it with a 14-year-old to take away the capacity to plan and hope and dream. That's that's I mean, that's a terrible thing to do to a person. But you know, say at my time of life where I'm, you know, moving into my 70s for me to be completely adhered to the idea that I know where I'm going, you know, that I can determine, you know, what what is going to happen over the next 15, whatever amount of time I have left would also be completely inappropriate. Like I need to be in that more expanded unlimited space but at the same time i'm a very i'm very committed to my goals you know and with the full realization that none of them may come to pass so i would say that and then the other uh, concept i want to drop in here is one that's really central to my work both one on one and in group dynamics is this notion of entelechy 
which is a primary way that I look at how change happens in humans, in, in the whole cosmos. But every living thing, from my perspective, has an innate impulse to become itself. And that Greek word entelechy means having within myself the completion, the wholeness that's already there at the seed moment. And to me, that is the strongest, most potent psychological, energetic, or psychic energy in the universe is this drive to become the wholeness of who I am. So there is a directionality to that entelechy. You know, every seed that sprouts has an implicit direction. And then it meets the entelechy of the cosmos, you know. So this is the dance that you're inviting us into, that dance between my own willful expression towards wholeness and then meeting the world as it is, you know, all of the conditions that that I am going to dance with in that process. So I'll uh, drop, that, drop that in. <laughs> yeah, no, because I, I, I was thinking about this notion of purpose as well. And, you know, that's also a common idea, common parlance in the coaching industry and in life, you know, having a sense of purpose. And... Um, I guess what my question is, maybe this could be to all three of you, but particularly you, Laurie, is like, how do you uh, attune to that entelechy or maybe uh, hold space, tend tend to that entelechy? And just to kind of smudge in this kind of reflection of, of like, maybe this taps back into, you know, sometimes people can hold this notion of purpose in a way that is, um, like creates a sense of like eternalism or something like, you know, destiny, like there's, you know, already this preordained path out there and uh, it can become reified in a sense, you know, and, and like, I'm, I think we're all pointing to something quite different, a different, um, yeah, I don't know, like what it would be like a principle or, or sensibility you know, of how, how this is working within us, how it's unfolding. So how, how, I guess the question then is, how do you tend to that entelechy and allow its flourishing? How does it show up in your daily life? How can we attend to that? Such a great question, Joel. And, and just, I want to hear from everyone, but I will say that I think that is one of the great gifts of having a, a practice like Chinese medicine, which is based on the idea that we are tracking that very movement. You know, another word for entelechy is Tao, or, you know, for the ancient Chinese, there was a mandate that comes. And when I am living into that heavenly mandate, that's when that radiance that we've been talking about from the heart begins to shine outward. So, and it's very different from what you're talking about as the reification of, you know, this is my destiny and I'm going to stick to it. And, you know, who cares about anyone who gets in my way? Cause I'm, I'm on it, you know, 
but but the radiance that shines out from a person who's living into their Tao or expressing their innate entelechy, it's a very different qualitative experience. So one of the tools that, of course, we can use as practitioners of Chinese medicine is you can feel that on the pulse of a person's, how their blood is actually flowing through their body. You can see it through the radiance of the light that shines from their eyes. You can hear it in their voice. You know, basically from a Taoist perspective, all illness is really when we are not living into that flow. There are very specific tools that I use with patients and in my own clinical practice, but I want to make space for others to speak and then come back around. <laughs> I think what's what's arising for me, and, and Laurie, I just want to say, and really enjoying your speaking and it's such alignment um, with me. But what's arising for me is the sense, you know, Lori spoke about it's a different quality. To me, you know, sometimes in, in Western orientation and thought, it's like purpose or destiny. There's, I feel part of the quality, it can be a sense of um, in its shadow forms, kind of a sense of rigidity or holding or, you know, some structure that is being like almost forced or you have to use your will to make something happen. And while I believe there can be a lot of virtue and something like perseverance, um, for me, what comes to play is really a, a radical shift in our in our cosmology. And Alexander and I were actually speaking about this last night around how we relate, how we are in relationship to ourself, our depth, another human being, an animal, a plant, the sky, right, the natural elements particles, atoms, right? How are we being in relation to the wholeness um, that quote unquote surrounds us, right? If we're to say we end at a certain point. Um, and I think that that also informs um, this conversation and how we hold envisioning life so that how we're relating, whether it be our client, our coachee, our partner, right, our team member, whoever it is, how are we understanding that relation and that becoming? Because the becoming and the unfolding would be radically different if I understand you as separate, if I understand you as other, right? So, so if I'm engaging in a becoming and in an unfolding that is immersed and steeped in an extended sense of, of self and universe, right, altogether, then the conversation, I think, is a different conversation than, than if we're holding it as like, this is my right, individual purpose, and it doesn't matter how it, quote unquote, impacts other people, right? That's a different, a very different way to think about envisioning right? How is um, what is becoming and what is showing up nourished by the air around me? How is it nourished by the ground beneath me? How is it nourished by my sweetheart? How is it nourished by my children? And, and how do their voices, right? How do we co-inform each other in what is showing up in the next heartbeat or the next moment of time? So 
I think it's a gorgeous question that invites us to keep kind of expanding into these larger and larger um, ways in which we know, ways in which we hold something, right? How are we holding this dialogue? Um, and how do we understand destiny? How do we understand purpose? So it's so rich because I think as we engage, you begin to kind of tease apart these fundamental assumptions that we bring into the conversation and how that impacts vision and future. Beautiful. Yeah. You know, it, it, it brings up so many things. And I guess where I'll start is, you know, in, in Chinese medicine, what I've learned from my teachers is that, you know, there's different ways of looking at this notion of destiny and I think in the in the modern Western-minded sense of it, we think of it as a destination. It's almost like we use fate and destiny as synonyms. But but what I've understood is is that you know from from one perspective, fulfilling your destiny isn't about like becoming the firefighter that you were destined to become. It's about um, becoming yourself uh, in a, in a given moment, in an arising moment, and. If I, as this thing people call Alexander, is authentically expressing in this moment, I'm fulfilling my destiny. And in the context of an emergence perspective or an evolutionary perspective, what I like to look at in terms of something like fate is not something that sits in front of me, but it's something that sits behind me in that what has happened has happened. And I'm not going to go into, can we change our past? And, you know, it brings us into shadow work. And there are, of course, all kinds of ways that we can create a, a new past in a way. But, but just for a moment, all of the things that have happened, like atoms getting together and exploding with a cosmic yes, and uh, all sorts of biological forces, you know, somehow emerging to create life. And, you know, what, what happened to my father when I was 20? And what happened this morning at CrossFit, all of these things, you know, from, from a certain perspective, they are, they've, they've occurred in the way they've occurred. And, and that informs who I am in this moment. So this is more of like a process perspective where the past keeps, you know, each moment keeps enfolding into the next moment to inform. And so then my fate is not what, what is going to happen to me. But rather, my fate, it, I, I might use a different word, it's the history, the living history that's been enfolded in this moment that's informing me, even just simply enough so that I can remember how to use language. That, has, that requires an enfoldment of the last, you know, whatever, 200,000 years or, you know, however long we've been learning how to speak. And then, then with that as the living history comes this moment of authenticity where I have a choice to listen to fragmentation or to listen to that deeper, those deeper soul tonalities. And if I'm able to, to respond to life and be in relationship with life from that deeper authenticity, um, from what I learned in Chinese medicine, that's fulfilling destiny. It's not in the future. It's something that's arising right here now. And if we then bring in, you know, uh, this sympoetic beauty that Veronica is pointing to, sympoesis, we've, some of us maybe have heard the word autopoesis, which is like the self-replication, the self-making. But then we have this term sympoesis, which is, you know, um, Donna Haraway is like be, uh, becoming with. 
And it's like, you know, right now I'm, I'm, you know, it's cold outside and I'm, I'm wearing, I'm wearing fabric and this fabric came from somewhere. It had its own intelligence. It had its own intentionality. It had its own arising and I'm wearing the cosmos and I'm, and I'm intimate with it, right. With the softness and the gentleness and the love for the work the human work to turn plants into fiber, into clothes, and then the love of the plant in its own becoming and, and the love of the atomic, subatomic territories that are, you know, intermingling and dancing to allow all of that. There's this becoming with in this moment of authenticity and that we're fulfilling our destiny together, you know, human and critter as I'm reading a book by Donna Haraway right now. So I'm very, I'm very informed by this, like being with critter, you know, being, being with the, the non-human world um, as a, as companioning, becoming together. Um, I'm curious how, cause it, it's really beautiful as is like stunning. Uh, pointing out instruction in a sense or you know invitation into a a way of being in the world and um i'm curious for each of you what led you into you know in a way i'm thinking of what you said laurie at the beginning of like yeah our last conversation was really exquisite and some people said but how like how can you access these experiences or states and we've been talking about integral you know an integral vantage point and this experience of wholeness which i started to experience as a phenomenological experience you know and in coaching i remember like i just hear this phrase like oh we're all already whole you know but it felt like just this phrase people would say and you'd be like oh yeah okay cool but no, it's actually a real phenomenological experience of wholeness where you feel like, oh, there's nothing missing in this moment. How, how, oh, what a great relief. And a, a different kind of unfolding begins to happen in that moment. I guess my question is for each of you, could you speak into how we can begin to access this sensibility, this uh, sensuality, you know, I'm hearing you, you talk about this, you know, extended sense of self and feeling the fabric and the fabric becomes alive. And, uh, you know, Veronica, you mentioned felt experience. So yeah. How, how can we begin to access this, you know, for people listening who are inspired by what you're saying? Mm, I'm, Really glad you're bringing us around to this part of the juiciness, Joel, because as much as I love, you know, the expansion of my mind when we talk about these ideas, when you're actually sitting with another human in a clinical encounter or in a coaching encounter or in a group teaching environment, it's how do we actually begin to embody the idea so that it's not a concept, but that it's a way of living. And I, I know, Veronica, you've been using the word felt sense, Joel. We've all been sort of circling around. But I feel that the, the, the being able to distinguish between when I am 
pushing towards a reification of an idea about purpose, as opposed to allowing the Tao to be a radiance that extends from me. First of all, it it means I'm going to care about how it feels. I'm going to begin to notice what's happening in my body and how my, what I call the postal, the somatic, neurological uh, sponginess of my organism is responding to what's going on. So again, the body's a place in, I studied for many years with Gene Genlin, and he would always say, the body knows more. The These body felt senses of the lower uh, sort of organism, what we think of as, you know, that's just the body doing its stomach gurgling or its back tightening or its throat tightening, that rather than just trying to approach it from the head, we begin to care about those murmurings and mutterings of the depths. Those are guideposts. Um, Jenlin would speak of them as, you know, sort of which way is fresh air or, you know, where wh that's where the entelechy emerges from, from the organism. So caring, really saying, taking the time again in, you know, Chinese word wu wei, you know, pausing, doing by not doing, allowing those emergences from down below. Sometimes I just, I teach people, I say the pause practice. It's, it's really simple. <laughs> and it's just noticing that you're speeding up, taking a breath, looking in, what's happening in me right now? What's happening on my, on the body level right now is a, is it's a tool that can change. I mean, people, it changes our life, just beginning to notice and care about the murmurings of that embodied soul that is, as you say, Alexander, and we've all been saying that that soul is, that organism is what connects us, with, is our rhizomatic connection, not only to our own embodied knowing, but to the whole life world. So that's one, that's one way. <laughs> we'll start with that one. So um, I can jump in here. Um, you know, br br briefly, Chinese medicine has a very intricate understanding of dimensions of depth. It's something that we could spend, you know, a whole conversation in and of itself exploring. But in essence, we're built like an avocado. And the seed of the avocado often gets translated with words in English like essential, essence, something like that. And so if we, lo if we look at that in the context of the bones of our heart, the sort of essence of our heart or this deep human nature, which I, I believe is good. I, I get that this, I mean, my father was murdered. It's like, I'm not, I'm not blind to the fact that terrible things happen. And yet I will still claim that I think human nature is fundamentally good. 
um, even with all the evil and the darkness we see in the world. And so for me, as someone who is very deeply rooted in um, shadow work and supporting my clients in shadow work practices, uh, and to be clear to me, shadow is anything hidden, deeply hidden. Um, so that can include virtue as well. It's not just the dark, scary things. So in light of that, there's this notion of, you know, we have this, this seed of the avocado, which is this essential depth, this soul depth. And, and then we have the mushy part of the avocado and we have the skin of the avocado. And, and briefly, these are, these are personalities, these are conditions, these are learned behaviors, for better or for worse. Um, they're not all bad. They're just what they are. And they tend to clothe this deeper virtue, which is why anytime you interact with someone who's being mean, if you're able to do it in such a way that you get to what's underneath that, there's always good intentions for why they're being mean. There's always a vulnerability underneath. Even the part of them that's being mean is doing it to protect the person. And so with all that said, we have these senses of these parts of the self that when they fragment, they only can see usually one side. And when they do that, they tend to take over and occlude this deeper essence that we've all been speaking to in various ways. They tend to see from one side and block us from this, you could say a sea of virtue. It's not a virtue, it's a sea, it's like a stem cellularity of virtue. It's a, a sea that depending on the context can become any virtue and respond authentically in the moment. And so all of this to say, a very simple practice I, I borrow from internal family systems is the stepping aside practice where what you do is you ask yourself, well, how do I feel towards such, a, such and such a situation? How do I feel towards going to school today? How do I feel towards going to work? How do I feel towards my client? And if the answer, we start listening for voices of fragmentation or voices of wholeness. If it's, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm overwhelmed, I don't want to go to work. This is annoying. There's no possibility. This is a problem or you have the voice of the critic, you know, you're not gonna be a good, all of those things are voices of fragmentation. So I'm, my practice is to learn how to listen. Very simply, is this a voice of wholeness or a voice of fragment? And if it's a voice of fragment, all you do is you just gently ask, hey, part of the self that is yelling at me or talking about how exhausted everything is or how everything sucks. I noticed you just stepped in, would you mind just stepping aside, just unblending, being with me. I want to be with you, but I can be with you better if I'm here. And by I'm, I mean the place where I put your name and where I put your name is in your deep good nature, your true nature. And then the part will step aside often, sometimes it won't, but sometimes it will. And then the next question is, how do I feel towards X, Y, and Z now? And it might go from exhausted to frustrated. Well, I'm not exhausted anymore, but now I'm pissed. Hey, would the part that's feeling pissed be willing to unblend, step aside, and be with me? And so you keep asking this question, how do I feel towards whatever the thing is? Until you start hearing the voice of wholeness, which is, oh, I'm curious. Oh, I'm feeling interested. I'm feeling loving. I'm in a place of wonder. And then we start having this felt sense that Lori is speaking to of the difference between what does it feel like in my somatic embodied experience of when I am speaking, living from acting from fragment 
or when I'm speaking or being from wholeness. And so this is something where you don't have to go into like a full shadow process. You can do this when you're driving after you've practiced a little bit. You can do this walking down the street. You can do this when you're about to get into an argument. You can say, hey, I just need to go to the bathroom. Can you give me a second? And then you say, okay, how do I feel this? Well, they're screwing up my life. Can the part who feels like they're screwing up my life step aside? How do I feel now? Sad. Can the sad part step aside? How do I feel now? Oh, I'm a little curious now. Okay. And so this is a practice that I do. And the one last bit I'll say here is that once you ask the parts to step aside, sometime in the same day, give them some attention from wholeness. Give them some experience of bond with you as center. And that has the feature of starting to develop trust. Not only can we not see our shadows, but often our shadows cannot see us. And they're scared, which is why they're taking over and trying to run your life for you. And so if you ask them to step aside and then you bond and they get to know you as wholeness, they'll become increasingly more willing to step aside because there's more trust in your system. And then you can live from wholeness more and more and more. And it can become a choice commitment where you say, I'm not going to have conversations from fragment and I'm going to take care of myself internally before I enter the conversation or I manage during the conversation or I pause and slow it down as, as Lori pointed to. Anyway, that's, that's kind of what I, what I would propose in this, in this thing here. I think both of the practices that have been mentioned are really um, gorgeous practices, you know, listening to the body murmurs and mutterings, as Laurie said, or um, the stepping aside practice. And I think there are many, many ways in to wholeness. Um, and I think it's important to notice when one tool serves you, you know, there are moments when some practice doesn't serve and it's time to shift to another. So I think having a, a repertoire um, that you can choose from is really vital. I think two things arise for me. One is recognizing the value of also um, when someone else is anchored in wholeness, then the field also shifts and there's a limbic resonance um, with another being that can also activate um, our own wholeness. So to be witnessed from someone who's seeing you from wholeness we also shift. And so to be in an environment that is anchored in wholeness or a community that is practicing wholeness is also extraordinarily supportive. So again, going back to being with and becoming with in relationship. So sometimes, you know, we do can do our own work with our being and sometimes life takes us for a ride. That's pretty wild. <laughs> and we also need the support of others. And so I think um, having that also say not only, you know, can we call upon our own resilient skills, but we can also be in the presence of someone else who's just simply holding wholeness for us. And that can also online and bring on board our own wholeness. Another practice, which I think is also just um, really coming into relationship with our senses and the sensorial practices can wake us up, right? So even standing before a tree and then really practice being with the tree and seeing it can be a tree, it can be anything, a flower, the sky, a mountain, right? But being really allowing ourselves to um, 
to be in relationship with that element can evoke um, can evoke us back to a sense of deep presence. Because when we're speaking about wholeness, we're also speaking about deep presence. And there's a real relationship there between what is the quality of the presence that I am being with in the moment. And so when we're in presence and wholeness, that that relationship, I think, can really strengthen feeling a sense of, oh, as I see the beauty in this tree, in this mountain, I'm also going to contact my own beauty because it's the same, right? So as I see the beauty in the external environment, I can also see it in my internal landscape. And I think that is a really lovely practice that's quite simple of just sitting there and being with the water and feeling the water and all the virtues that reside there wake up the virtues in our own being as well. So I would offer that as a practice. Really exquisite, you know. Uh, I was actually sort of feeling into the value in my own path as just as you started to speak there, Veronica, of having those virtues, I, I kind of described them as like qualities of presence reflected back to me by people who are familiar with them as they're showing up in me. And it's like, oh yeah, like I'm feeling a like a quality of strength here right now or or love, you know. Uh and um the this this almost like meta skill that I'm hearing described of of like depth, you know, has been important for me in recognizing when am I identified with parts or fragments and learning to, to disidentify and, and then re-identify as wholeness, you know, and um, it seems like, and I'm curious about you with this, that perhaps one of the principles, I'm not quite sure what word to use, but that, um, you know, in uh, modernity, or if we say have only lived in our kind of, I'm not sure of the word that you use, Laurie, but it's like um, modern mindset, you know, and Gebs's notion is what it's called. But it that mindset of, is one of like breaking things down and kind of mapping things and talking about progress in a sense, and can perhaps have a tendency to solve problems. And and so it, my sense is that it's requiring a movement beyond that into something where where when we we cease trying to fix things, there's an embrace, there's a certain kind of embrace uh, that that takes place that allows things to be to have their place in a way that they begin to unfold or or integrate, and then we cohere in a different way. And, so I think that's my own addition to, to what I'm hearing you all speak into. Um, yeah, really beautiful. Um, I'm curious, actually, where we go now. Well, one one thing that comes up from what you were saying, Joel, is, is I just want to, you know, with all the work that I do with people and within myself around parts, parts are very sneaky. And amongst the most cultivated individuals, I see parts take over without them knowing it all the time. The parts that say, oh, like, when is my shadow work going to be over? Or, you know, these little things that they, we don't, we don't, you know, we don't think of them. 
as coming from fragment. But they are, because wholeness doesn't have problems. It can engage with the issues and the difficulties and the horrors that we face as humanity. It doesn't transcend that and dismiss it and say, oh, that's not real. But the soul itself doesn't see that as a problem. It sees it and everyone as a possibility, an emergent possibility, a co-arising or a, a, a becoming with possibility. And it just doesn't have problems. It's not tired. It's not overwhelmed. It, it, it doesn't want it all to end. While it can still recognize because it, it, it contains deep compassion and it can feel the pain of all of humanity without flinching and without having to guard. So it's, it's fully available to feel the intensity and to, to, to weep, you know, along with those, like when we're weeping, like it, it can weep with us as we're in pain, whoever the person or people are that's experiencing that. And I just, I just want to invite how subtle fragments are when they take over and how important it can be to really suss it out, even in folks that are into development and are into later stages of development, it's happening just as much, even if not more. And so I just wanted to kind of put an extra volume turn on that, because I think that this for me is the heart of what's needed for us to really discover our good human nature. Um, and it affects all of us, every single one of us, all the time. So I can dovetail on what you're saying, Alexander. And Donna Haraway talks about staying with trouble. And she talks about this word trouble, which comes from the word meaning to stir, to mix, right? And um, this idea that many of us are individually being stirred by life, mixed by life. And then we have the collective stirring and the collective chaos and the right the collective uh, meta crisis, all that that we're facing. So we have so much going on, and this idea of staying with, um, again, bringing us back to wholeness. How do we be with so many turbid waters? <laughs> right, life is demanding us um, to to really um, be during these times. And I think the practice of wholeness is a way in which we can face and walk the journey together. And to me, this element of togetherness is so vital. I feel it's so easy to demonize others. It's so easy. And I think when we put at the heart that wholeness isn't just individual wholeness, it's wholeness of humanity. And so how do we be with the pain of someone, be with the challenges of history, right? Be in this co-creating a future, an emergent future that is, you know, that has turbid waters, that is mixed up and that can be so disorienting, right? And so for me, this sense of can we come back to wholeness? Can we support each other when we're not in wholeness? To me, it's, it's such an invitation for compassion 
We all struggle, every human being. And so onboarding compassion, activating our hearts, practicing coming back to virtue, all of these practices, I believe, really support us in deeper understanding and in increasing our capacity for love fundamentally. And so for me, that's the gift, right? Like if we're to get so theoretical or so expansive or so so all of that, when it comes down to it, right? Are we being in love with our own being and with the being that's in front of us and with our community? And are we holding with care? I know we're coming to closure here. And thank you. Thanks. All is just I'm I'm brimful and I love um, where you just went with this Veronica and I feel at closing that that it would be in it would be in propriety to name the 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 gift or the place that is in each of us that can guide us to what we're all talking about. And and so going back to Chinese medicine and the Taoist philosophy, there's, um, it's very clear, as you said, that the heart, the heart, or what they call shin, the heart mind, is what will allow us to actualize everything we're talking about. And that the heart mind as an organ of perception and communication that actually is located in us. So in everything that everyone said for the Chinese, it's like the heart is the only place that can bring all of these contradictions and paradoxes into what we keep talking about, a state of wholeness or integrity. And um, just very, very simple, bringing it all back home to what I do moment to moment. It's breathing into that space, caring about the actual embodied space in me where that intelligence is centered. Um, And again, there's so many studies on this. and you all, I'm sure, know the work of the Heart Mind Institute and many studies that show when we're actually breathing into the space where, where I'm breathing into my heart as I listen to you, you know, as I am with you, and allowing that to be the lead as opposed to my mental thinking, you know, am I tired? Am I angry? Do I want to go here? And where am I? All of that work if we actually ground it in the heart breath, you know, then as that, as that will guide me to the place of, of being able to see all the perspectives, the wholeness place. So it's a very, you know, as I understand it and as I live it, it's a very act, it's a choice. It's a physical shift of pausing you know, listening, caring, and dropping into breathing into the heart and letting that be the leading actual step forth into, into 
whatever is emergent, as, as we might call it, future. Yeah, beautiful. Um, an invitation into wholeness. That's what we'll call this conversation. But yeah, I just want to thank each one of you for this, the quality of this conversation. I think it's been exceptional. And I think we, you know, we did bring in more of, I don't know, was, the word practical is the right word, but, you know, in how might people begin to cultivate or orient towards some of the things we've talked about so yeah, thanks each one of you. And actually, uh, before I forget, uh, where can we find out more about your work as well? Each one of you. Um, for me, Lori, I'm at a new possibility.com. There's so much there. It's a huge world. We have a community um, that you can enter through that website, a new possibility.com. And I also have um, three books out there in the world. One is Five Spirits for more Taoist Chinese medicine and the alchemy of inner work, which is very hands-on how-to. And then another book more for practitioners um, called Kigo, which is looking at the spiritual dimension of acupuncture points. So those are all ways to be in touch with me and connect. And I would welcome anyone who wants to be more directly in touch. Uh, for for me, um, if people want to get in touch with me more directly, they could go to um, EOSLearningCollective.com, um, EOS Learning Collective. But um, the main place people can find me is at Newfield, NewfieldNetwork.com. Yeah. And this is Veronica, and also I'm with Newfield Network, so newfieldnetwork.com, where we we do um, coach certification programs, leadership development, and personal development. So we have programs there for people that are interested in exploring um, wholeness, exploring somatic work, um, language, emotion. We do a very integrative program. Um, and we've been doing it for over 30 years. So we would love to connect with you and see if that's of interest and resonates for you. All right. Thank you so much. Here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a, a heads up again. If you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time.